everybody, let's open the Bible together to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is on page number 927 if you're using the Bible there in the pew. And if we've not met, my name is Brian McCoy and I'm the lead pastor here at Foothills. And if you don't have the Foothills app on your phone, we would love for you to get it. It's just another opportunity for you to connect and engage in the life of the church. It's really a discipleship tool because as you use the app, particularly on a Sunday morning like this, you can open it up to the sermon notes and take some notes save them, refer back to them at another time. You can watch or listen to the messages in the next week. There are uh, your Foothills group materials are there. You can find those there as well. You can give via the app. The app is just a tool for discipleship, helping you to walk with Jesus. So we hope that you'll plug in and, and use it together with us, all right? Hey, I wonder if you've ever heard of this guy, and I hope that I'm gonna pronounce his name correctly, Jai Zhang. Jai Zhang. He's a Chinese young man. He was earning a PhD at University of Texas, and he had a fear of rejection, and it really controlled his life. He wanted that to change, and so he decided to conduct an experiment. And so for 100 days, he chose to be rejected in a different way. For instance, uh, he went to a stranger, and he asked for $100. No. <laughs> he knocked on a stranger's door. He had a little flower, and he said, can I plant this in your backyard? No. <laughs> he, uh, he then went to a burger joint. He had his lunch, took his empty burger basket back up to the counter and said, may I have a burger refill, please? No, you can have a Coke refill, but not a burger refill, right? He went to a Krispy Kreme donut place. And he said, hey, I would like for you to make me a Krispy Kreme donut, a giant Krispy Kreme donut of the five Olympic rings. Can you do that? And the lady said, let me see. 15 minutes later, she brings him out a box, like a dozen box of Krispy Kremes. I'm familiar with those boxes, by the way. She opens it up, and there is this Krispy Kreme donut representing the five Olympic rings, different colored icing on each one of them. He videotaped that whole encounter. He got five million hits on YouTube. He ended up giving a TED Talk about rejection and how often what we think of rejection is far worse than what it really is. And now he has to reject speaking requests from other people, right? Because he's gotten busy with his life. We are studying through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the story of how God has unleashed the gospel into the world. And so in the context of Acts, we have talked a lot about presenting the gospel. And if there's one thing that many Christians have in common, it's a fear of rejection when it comes to presenting the gospel to other people. There's a sense in which we might receive some pushback and some rejection. And if I could tell you that there's a way to present the gospel without anyone ever rejecting it, I would tell it, tell it to you. But it's just not realistic because Jesus told us to expect to be rejected. And we know that the gospel message actually disrupts our lives. You, you can't hear the gospel, we can't receive the gospel and live the same way. It turns our lives inside out, upside down. It changes us as people. And so there's this fear of rejection that we get, and there's a fear of failure. What if I don't get it right? What if they ask a question I can't answer? Uh, what if I don't give them the proper information? I don't want to fail Jesus. I don't want to fail these people. So the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, can often get in the way of presenting the gospel. This text shows us Jesus, the risen Christ, encouraging the Apostle Paul in the face of rejection to not go silent with the gospel. But to speak up, in fact, to never give up, and that's the title of the message today, Never Give Up, Never Give Up. And I want to start here, kind of at 50,000 feet, if you will, because the, it's important for us to remember this. The Bible isn't primarily about the human characters in it. 
It's not primarily about what we need to learn from them. It's primarily about God and what we need to learn about who he is and how he's at work in the world. That's what the Bible is about. Why do we have the book of Acts in the Bible? If you looked at the first chapter of Acts, the first two verses, you'll see that Luke, who wrote this book, says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. He's referring to his gospel, the gospel of Luke, that he also wrote to this man named Theophilus. And he's telling Theophilus, I wrote the gospel to let you know this is everything that Jesus began to do and teach at his ministry. The book of Acts begins on the day that Jesus was taken up. And so everything that Jesus continues to do, that's what I want you to read about. That's what I want you to see and understand, Theophilus. And so Luke wrote the book of Acts for that reason, but also, I think, not to primarily encourage us to never give up in presenting the gospel by pointing us to the examples of Paul the Apostle or Peter or James or John. The book of Acts isn't there primarily to encourage us to keep moving forward with the gospel by pointing us to examples like Jason or Philip or Stephen or Lydia. The book of Acts is in the Bible because we are meant to see that Jesus is still working, that it was Jesus who was at work unleashing the gospel into the world. And if Jesus is working, we should never give up. That's the message of this text, and that's the encouragement that I think that we need. And we're going to see three reasons why that's true out of this text today. First, the reason is that the risen Jesus provides support for gospel mission. The second reason is that the risen Jesus provides opportunities for the gospel, even in the face of rejection. And the third one is that the risen Jesus provides promises that we can depend on when it comes to presenting the gospel. So we're gonna walk through those three reasons out of this text, all right? So before we do that, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you today again that we can gather in this room as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the church gathered together. Father, I pray for every heart in the room today, every mind in this room, that you would help us to concentrate and to hear from your voice. Father, we believe that your word is true, that it's given, given to us perfectly, and we believe that you have promised to teach us through it. And so, Father, we pray that in these moments, that by your spirit, you would teach us your word, that you would remind us of the truth, you would guide us into truth, you would convict us of sin, that you would challenge us in our thinking about things, and that you would encourage us mostly to never give up in the work that we have as missionaries in this world, as witnesses of Jesus as we go along in our daily lives. We pray all this in his name, the Lord Jesus, amen. So let's look at the first five verses, all right? Chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So the newest soil for the seed of the gospel that Paul and his teammates are planting is Corinth. If you want to, you can think of Athens as if it were Tucson. It's a great college town. 
But then there's Corinth. It's a commercial megacity. It's got two seaports, one to the east, one to the west, a six and a half mile road between them. Some crazy stuff went on in that city. It was, a, it was the hub of international trade. Uh, it was also home to the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. There were a thousand temple prostitutes that worked in the city. Beyond that, it was a city that hosted the earliest Olympic games. The athletic games happened there in Corinth. And beyond that, in AD 49, when Claudius pushed all of the Jews out of Rome, a synagogue formed in the city of Corinth in AD 49. So we have Aquila and Priscilla who have come there as a result. To be referred to as a Corinthian, that wasn't a compliment. To Corinthianize meant to practice immorality. That's the kind of city that Jesus wants to unleash the gospel into. That's the sort of place that he wants to see the church planted. And so how does he provide support for the gospel mission in that place? Well, he put Aquila and Priscilla there. They were there before Paul ever arrived. And when Paul gets there, he finds in this pair business partners, as it were, right? They, they have the same trade together. They're tent makers, they're leather workers, they're craftsmen together. And so Paul joins forces with them and they work and they earn money because if you're going to live in the city, you need some money. And so Paul did that. But beyond that, they were more than just business partners. I think that they were gospel partners because when you read to the end of the chapter, you discover there's a new person in the mix. There's a man named Apollos, and he's an early Christian preacher, but he doesn't know everything that he needs to know in order to preach the gospel. And so who disciples him? Who trains him? Who helps equip him? Aquila and Priscilla. So I don't think that they're just Jews, but they are Jews who have come to believe in Jesus and they're helping to disciple this young man. So Paul finds in this pair, not just business partners, but gospel partners. Jesus provided them for him. And so Paul would spend his week working, making tents. And then on this day off, on the Sabbath, he'd go to the synagogue and he'd present the gospel to the people there. But now Silas and Timothy show up from Macedonia and most people believe that they show up with funds from those churches because Paul pivots. And now instead of spending every day making tents, he's now spending every day presenting the gospel. Rather than just doing that one day a week, he's doing it all week long because now they have support. Now, Silas and Timothy carried that support from Macedonia to Corinth, and the churches gave that support. But where did the churches come from? Jesus raised up those churches. Those churches were born because Jesus planted the gospel in those places. Jesus is the one that provides support for gospel mission. He's the one that makes it happen. If we want to become a church, and we do, that sends out people, that supports people, that equips people to become planters of churches, local churches, if we want to send out people and support them and encourage them who will do global missions around the world, then we can't do that on our own. Apart from Jesus, the gospel of John tells us we can do nothing. And that's what we see happening here. It's Jesus who provides support for gospel mission. Apart from Jesus, Paul couldn't do anything in Corinth. Silas and Timothy couldn't do anything in Corinth. But he provided the support of people and of funding in order to do that. And so we've got to pray and we've got to depend on him to send out workers into the harvest and for us to prepare them and send them and to financially support them. When you think about your own life individually as a Christian, I want you to think in terms of this and just perhaps to even say this to yourself. I'm not alone. I'm not alone in my faith in Christ in Awatuki. 
I'm not alone in my faith in Christ in the foothills or Club West or Old Abatuki, wherever you live. I'm not alone. Even in my workplace, I'm not alone in my neighborhood. There are probably other people who are believers who live near to me. I'm not on my own. And ask yourself this question, who are my partners in this mission? Who are my partners? If you look around the room, you can see some of your partners. Because if you're a member of this church, then you've got some partners in the gospel. We don't do this on our own. Can you imagine me trying to carry off an event like Snowy Night on my own? I mean, 1,600, 1,700 people come onto our campus uh, once a year for that, for that opportunity to share, the, share Christ with people. I couldn't do that on my, my own, but together we can do that. Think about something like Angel Tree that we did at Christmas time, where we helped so many people, so many families, so many children. We can't, I couldn't do that on my own. But together as a church, we can partner with each other and get the gospel to tens of families that way. It's really an amazing thing that we can do together. Think beyond that, though, or perhaps in a little smaller context. Think about your Foothills group. That's my, those people are my partners in the gospel, all right? They're the people who show up at my house once a week, and I don't lead the group, but we host the group. And, and when they come, they encourage me, and they support me. They pray with me. And we talk together about, hey, what has God done this week in your life? What have you seen him doing? And how can we pray for one another? And who are we trying to get the gospel to? And how can we pray for each other to do that? These people are partners together with me in the gospel. And we've been talking about these little neighborhood egg hunts. That's not just some kind of funny novelty that the staff has got nothing better to do but dream up on our spare time right? We're trying to reach our neighborhoods and our, our community. And one of the best ways we think that we can do that is actually to lean into the culture just a bit and do some egg hunts, but do them through the vehicle of our Foothills groups. And so our Foothills group has decided we're going to do our egg hunt since it meets at my home and I'm not far from the Desert Foothills Park. We're going to do it at the park. And we're going to invite the people who live all around us in our community to come, bring their kids, and come to the park and do that, do that egg hunt with us. I know of one other uh, Foothills group that's thinking about using this green belt right here next to the church because their group meets right here in this neighborhood. I know some groups that are going to meet and do it at the park in Club West. I don't care. It doesn't matter where your group does it. They could do it in someone's backyard or front yard for that matter. But the important thing is that we partner together to do these things. And, and that's really important for me because I'm a 57-year-old guy. My kids are in their 30s, and it would look really weird for me to show up at an egg hunt by myself. Nobody wants that. I don't want that, right? So it's good when I can partner together with other folks and we can lean in, right? It's important to do that. Jesus gives us those kinds of partnerships for the gospel. I'm not alone in gospel ministry. We do it together. I have a foothills group that I can lean in together with. And even when I need financial support and those kinds of things, we lean in together. Jesus provides all of that for us. But Jesus also provides opportunities for the gospel in the face of rejection. So look at the next few verses, six through eight. So we've got Paul, and he's out there, and he's proclaiming the gospel, presenting the gospel. We know that he goes into the, into the synagogue, and when he's there, look at what it says. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Do you see what the risen Christ is doing in this instance? You've got Paul, once again, going to the synagogues to present Christ there. He does that over and over again. But as a group, they reject him. They don't want to hear from him. They slam the door, as it were, in his face. And it almost seems like it's unanimous, but it's not, right? There are two people who say, wait a minute, we want to hear more about this. So this man, Titius Justus, who's a God-fearer, very much like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He's a Gentile, he's not a Jew, but he believes in the God of the Jews. And he says, Paul, Paul, come, come to my house. Where do you live? How long will it take us to get there? Can people find it? Oh, yeah, people can find it. It's right here, next door to the synagogue. Talk about awkward. I mean, he just got kicked out of the synagogue for presenting the gospel. And now a guy from within the synagogue, this Gentile guy, who's, yes, a God-fearer and believing in the God of the Jews, he says, why don't you come next door? And so people, instead of going into the synagogue, are now going into Titius Justice's house. And one of those people is the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, who has now chosen to believe in Christ. And he's led the rest of his family to trust in Christ. And now all of those people are doing that, and it says beyond that, many of the Corinthians who heard the gospel believed and were baptized. Jesus provides opportunities for the gospel even in the face of rejection, which means this for you and me, that even when people push back on it and, and are antagonistic about it or apathetic about it or say no to the gospel, that's not the end of the mission. That's not the end of the story. Because Jesus can open opportunities for the gospel even in the face of rejection. Now, what is all this business about Paul shaking out his garments and saying, your blood be upon your heads? That sounds very weird. It's a very weird thing. We don't, we don't have anything like that now. It's kind of strange. What does it mean? Uh, well, in, in, in that day, it would have been like an act of judgment. It was as if Paul was saying, you had the opportunity to do the right thing. You heard the gospel, but you rejected it. So that's it. You're not going to have that opportunity anymore. So he was shaking out his garments. It's a very similar action when we see Jesus telling his disciples to shake the dust off of their feet. We've seen that in the book of Acts as well. We, we might say something like, well, I'm just going to wash my hands of this. I'm going to wash my hands of this. I'm going to be done with it. What does it mean to have blood on your hands? He says your blood be on your own heads. Well, we know what it means to have blood on your hands. It means that you're responsible for the death of another person. Perhaps you were supposed to protect them or care for them, but they died and the blood is on your hands. You're guilty. You're not innocent. You're responsible for that. Well, in cities, ancient cities, there were walls and there were people that stood on those walls, watchmen. Their job was to stay awake. They were the early warning system for the city. If there was any danger approaching, they were supposed to wake up the population and get them safe. That's what they were there for. And Paul is kind of speaking out of that. So when he says... To have blood on your own head, it's like you're responsible for your own judgment. That's what's happened here. Paul's saying, I presented the gospel to you. You've heard the gospel. You had an opportunity to be saved, but you've rejected it. I'm innocent of this. I've done my role. I've carried it out. I've carried out my responsibility. Now you're responsible for what you do with the gospel. And so two things are happening here. We see Jesus turning the rejection of the gospel by the Jews into an opportunity for the gospel to spread through the whole city of Corinth. But we also see this, and we need to kind of take this to heart, that we're responsible for what we do with the gospel as followers of Christ. But we're not responsible for what other people do with the gospel. We're responsible for what we do with the gospel. 
But as followers of Christ, we're not responsible for what others do with the gospel. And so we have to be careful because the pendulum can swing from one end to the other. If, like Gary, we have a conversation with someone on the street or you've been talking to a coworker or a friend or a neighbor and that person comes to faith in Jesus, if we're not careful, we might get a little prideful about that. Say, man, I, I was good. I, I can share the gospel really well. I'm so glad about it. And we pat ourselves on the back. Don't get too prideful about it. And on the other hand, when people are antagonistic and they push back and they're not interested in hearing it anymore, don't get so discouraged. Don't, don't beat yourself up about it right? This is the work of Jesus. We're responsible to present the gospel. We are not responsible for the results that follow. And I've heard a lot of you pray for family members and friends and co-workers, people that need to, need to know Jesus. I've seen some of you weep over those people because it breaks your hearts. You want them to know Christ. You want them to know forgiveness and cleansing. You want them to know new life in Jesus. And those things are all good, but we have to remember that salvation is of the Lord. So we trust God because it's his work. We trust him, we present the gospel, we rejoice when people believe, and if they don't, we don't get into the pits. and We don't get so discouraged that we give up. We keep going with the gospel. You'll notice in this text here, it tells us that this, the Jews as a group, they were opposed to Paul, but he never gave up on him. And humanly speaking, the most unlikely convert here is Crispus who was the leader of the synagogue and yet he comes to faith in Christ and he leads the entire rest of his family to come and believe on Christ as well can I can I say something just parenthetically to the men in the room lead your families to Jesus read the scriptures be an example be a model of that do it in humility admit it when you've blown it be quick to repent and to ask forgiveness and be quick to point others in your family to Jesus Lead them to Christ. It's a powerful thing. And if you're a single mom, lead your family to Jesus. You're the spiritual head of your household. Don't be discouraged by that. Just walk with Jesus and lead your children to him as well. Well, we see this happen. It was a very unlikely kind of a thing for Christmas to come to faith. And just because there's a group of people who are negative about the gospel doesn't mean that everyone is. So we need to keep something in mind. We need to not categorize people into those who are likely to receive Christ, those who are likely to believe, and those who are unlikely to believe. And if you're anything like me, you mark people like that visually, right? You see somebody and you think, oh, that guy is not gonna be interested. He's not gonna wanna hear what I have to say. He's gonna push back really hard, and it's gonna be a very awkward conversation, and I don't really want, I'm not interested in that. But this person, oh, I think that they might actually listen to me. I think they might actually be willing to hear what I have to say. Perhaps uh, because they've been to church or this or that, they might be likely to believe the gospel. We put people into categories, and when we do that, it either opens us up or it closes us off. And the truth of the matter is, right, didn't Jesus say that it's impossible to come to him apart from the Father working, apart from the Spirit drawing us? He did. You know what that means? We are all living under the banner of unlikely converts to Jesus. That's where we all live before we knew Christ. We were all unlikely because it's impossible for us. It's not like you can wake up one day and suddenly decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. No, God has to be at work. There's a whole thing that has to happen. It's not just my decision on my own, as it were. So we all live under that banner of unlikely converts. And that means this, that there are no degrees of difficulty with God. We might think that there are, and we might look at people and think some people are more unlikely to believe in Christ than others. But that's not true. 
God can open any heart. And so we trust him to do that. Think about it this way. Humanly speaking, Paul, what an unlikely convert to Christ. And yet he's come to Jesus. He was a persecutor of Christians. He, he drove them out of their homes. He drove them away from their businesses. He did what he could to take their lives. And yet he's become a follower of Jesus. And he's presenting the gospel to a guy who is a very unlikely follower of Christ, Crispus. He's come to faith in Jesus. The moral of the story is this. We need to stop thinking humanly about the gospel as it goes out and as Jesus wants to use us in the world to get it to people. We need to stop thinking humanly. We need to be encouraged about the fact that Jesus will take moments of rejection of the gospel and turn them into opportunities for the gospel to spread, to be heard and believed on by others. Let's look at this third piece. The risen Jesus provides promises to us that we can depend upon in the midst of this gospel work. And so look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. We don't know how much time went, went, went by here. We don't know where it was at in his stay in Corinth. But Paul's asleep one night and he has this vision. So Jesus speaks to him, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. When I read that, one of the first things that comes to mind is that Paul is afraid of some of the same things that we're afraid of. He, he was afraid of being hurt again. He's afraid of being rejected with the gospel again. He's afraid that nothing's going to happen. There's not going to be any fruit in this ministry if I present the gospel. He's afraid of the same kinds of things. The fears that threaten to keep Paul quiet threaten to keep you and me quiet. Fears of rejection and, and failure. And to answer those fears, what does Jesus promise Paul? I'm with you. I'm with you. It's an echo of the Great Commission where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the, and the Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you and what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How would anyone ever go and make disciples and baptize them and try to teach them without knowing that Jesus was with them in the process? Apart from the presence of Jesus, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection would keep our mouths closed. It would hold us back. Why would we bother to go? You know, everywhere Paul went, he got hurt. Everywhere he went, he got beat on. In Derby, he was stoned, I think nearly to death. Uh, in Philippi, he was beaten with rods. He was thrown into jail. This man lived a difficult life when it came to getting the gospel out. He was beat up just about everywhere he went. And Jesus is coming to him now, and he's saying something different. I can imagine that Paul is not lying in bed night after night in Corinth thinking, well, I'm pretty sure I know where it's going to come from because it's come from the same group of people every time before. And I'm not sure when it's going to come, but I'm sure that they're going to get up in arms with me pretty soon. They're going to get agitated enough, and maybe they'll even drum up a big crowd of people, and they're going to come from me, and I don't know whether I'm going to be stoned or beaten with rods. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but it's not, it's not going to be good. But, but I've been there and done that, and so it's okay. That's not, that's not the picture we should have. That's not the picture that we should have. He's afraid. It never got easy for Paul. It, never, it kept on being hard. Why do we have this text where Jesus comes to him and says, do not be afraid if he wasn't afraid? But Jesus gives him a unique promise. We don't have this promise anywhere else in the text of, of, of the book of Acts or anywhere else in any of Paul's letters. 
We don't have any record that Jesus ever came to him and gave him this unique promise that, Paul, no one's going to attack you to harm you, and you're not going to have to run for your, for, for your life from this place to the next. This is the only time that we know of that Jesus gives Paul this promise. So it's a unique promise to Paul, and it's unique in time for Paul. And then Jesus says this. He says, I have many people in this city who are my people. So what does that mean? I've got many people in this city. They're my people. It could mean that there were many Christians in the city already. That when Paul got there, there were already many believers there, the people who were already trusting in Christ. But if it meant that, why would Jesus need to come to Paul and say, Paul, don't be afraid. No one's going to attack you to harm you. I have many people in this city, so keep speaking. I don't think that's it. I think what's happening here is Jesus coming to Paul and saying, I have many people in this city, Paul, and they're going to believe, they're going to turn, they're going to trust in me, but you need to speak the gospel. You need to speak the gospel. We see the sovereignty of God at work in the salvation of people. God ordains the ends and the means of salvation. That's what he does. He already has many people in the city, and yet the gospel still needs to be spoken. Beloved, you can go home this afternoon and spend a lot of time, you know, twisting yourself into a pretzel trying to figure out how this all works. And I don't know that I could explain it to you any better. I know that God is sovereign, that when people are saved, it's a, it's a divine spirit work of, of the Lord to bring people from darkness into light. And it doesn't happen. God has ordained it. It doesn't happen apart from you and me sharing the gospel. So we've got to get out there and be part of it. And Jesus is promising Paul, I'm going to be with you in it. I have many people here. You're not going to be attacked to be harmed, so keep speaking. Don't give up. This is Jesus telling him this. Now look at verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And you're probably thinking, aha, but keep reading. Saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Paul was about to open his mouth when Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, vicious crime, O Jews, I would have some reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, must be the guy replacing Crispus. So they seize him and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so who is this Gallio, right? It's a new character. Who is this guy? He's the proconsul of Achaia. His, his father was, was Seneca the Elder. If you know anything about Greek history, it makes his brother a Seneca the Younger. Seneca the Younger actually worked for Nero, the Roman emperor. And over time, Gallio was taken to Rome, and he worked for the emperor, and he was executed because he didn't like Nero and he plotted his death, but he was found out and they, they executed him. Gallio was a, a high-born guy, right? I mean, he was well-known across Roman society. He had this important position, this powerful position, and the Jews are jealous and angry with Paul, and so what do they do? They do the same thing that the Jews in Philippi did. They drag him to the civil authorities, and they make their complaint there, and they say, he's subverting our law, he's teaching things that are unlawful, and he's stirring up all this trouble, we need you to get him out of here, we need you to punish him. Philippi, Paul and Silas are beaten, they're thrown in jail 
by the civil authorities. What happens here? Gallio dismisses their charges, releases Paul, and poor Sosthenes becomes the scapegoat for the crowd, and they beat him. And I think this is interesting. When you go to 1 Corinthians, you're introduced to this guy, Sosthenes. So somewhere in here, Sosthenes has become a follower of Jesus, I believe. Maybe it was after he was beaten by the Jews. Maybe they didn't think his idea was so great after all since they failed in their court. I don't, I don't know. That's all speculation. Here's the real question. Why are these verses here? Why are we all of a sudden being introduced to Gallio by name? And what, what, what is all of this about? When you read your Bible, it is helpful to ask the question, what are these verses here for? So what is this section about? Is it here to give us political advice, to inform us on how we ought to vote as Christians in our country? Is it here to teach us to rely on the government to uphold our rights in the nation? Is it here to teach us that Jesus will make sure that the government never usurps our rights in our country? The answer is, of course, is no. No and no. That's not why this is here. You know why this is here? It's real simple. Jesus just made a promise to Paul, and we just saw the immediate fulfillment of that promise. That's why it's there. And can you imagine being a first century Christian follower of Christ and opening up the book of Acts and reading through it and getting this assurance that Jesus keeps his promises because that's what they just read and that's what we just saw here the immediate fulfillment of the promise to protect Paul and that's so good and we need to think in terms of this whatever it is that Jesus has called you to do he'll be with you that's the promise that we take from this remember this was a unique promise for Paul in time it doesn't supersede the other promises that Jesus has made us, which are difficult. Because he said, in the world you'll have tribulation. He told his followers that as you go out and your witnesses, it's going to be difficult and you're going to be dragged before kings and princes and others and there's going to be conflict around the gospel all the time. That's really kind of the standing promise from Jesus. Those, that, that describes for us what we can expect. But for this moment in time, for his own purposes and reasons, Jesus comes and he says, Paul, on this occasion, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put this bubble over you. And what happens? He spends 18 months in the city of Corinth. He spent longer in Corinth than any other place he had been up to that point because of the powerful presence of Jesus protecting him and watching over him. For you and me, this promise isn't really for us, I don't think, except for the fact that Jesus says, I will be with you. And we have Jesus promising us that over and over again in the text of the scriptures. And so we can bank on that. Whatever he's called us to do, he'll be with us through it. Whether it's rejection or acceptance of the gospel, he'll never leave us alone in that. Now I want you to look at these last few verses, 18 to 23. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. So he's headed towards home. And with him was Priscilla and Aquila. So they fold up the shop and they're traveling with him. And at, at uh, Sencri, Sencri, he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. We don't have a lot of other information about what that was about. But we know that he's got a haircut and he's under some sort of vow. He's made a promise to the Lord about something. Maybe it has to do with fear in his life. I don't know. It says they came to Ephesus and he left them there, Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself, notice this, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and when they asked him to stay for a little longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills and he set sail from Ephesus and when he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch and after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia 
strengthening the disciples. And so this is kind of a travel log, right? It's a travel log. Why is this, why is this here? We ought to ask the same question. Why do we have this little section of verses? Is it because Luke just wants us to know where Paul went next? And we can plot it on our map that I didn't give you. Or, or is it uh, something else? Is it to show us that this is the end of the second missionary journey? And it is. I think this is here to, to remind us that we should never give up. This is the living illustration of what Jesus was doing and what he wants us to do. And that is to never give up. Did you notice that Paul leaves Corinth on a ship? He and Aquila and Priscilla, they stop in Ephesus and he drops them off. But he's got some time before the turnaround. So what does he do? Well, he, I guess he could have gone to the beach, put his toes in the water, the cool waters of the Adriatic Sea. But he didn't do that. He found a synagogue and he went in there and he reasoned with the Jews. Every time Paul goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews, he meets opposition. Yes, there are some people that believe, but every single time, it's hard. It never gets easy. It keeps being tough. And what does he do when he has a moment? He goes to the synagogue and he presents Jesus. Never give up. And we see it going on. And he knows, I've got this promise of Jesus. He's always with me. I want you to think about this, a little history. Between 49 and 52 AD, it's estimated that the Apostle Paul traveled 2,000 miles by foot and 1,000 miles by sea. If you've got a Fitbit or a Garmin, that's a lot of steps. That's like walking from here to my mom's home in West Virginia, 2,000 miles. It's, a, it's almost 2,100 miles. We'll give him 100 miles, right? It's a long way. You imagine how hard Paul worked, how faithful he was, all the opposition that he faced, all the beatings that he took, all of that. He endured so much for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I love this, the church at Corinth was struggling mightily, and he wrote back to them. He said, we work with you for your joy. He never gave up in the face of all of that. And why is that? Because it was through Jesus through the supply of Jesus and the support of Jesus for the mission of the gospel in his life, he kept on moving forward with the gospel. He had partners in the gospel and he leaned on them. If you look through the letters of Paul in the New Testament, it's littered with the names of people who were on the team with him, who partnered with him in sharing the gospel. Jesus provided all those people. He leaned on Jesus. He looked at Jesus for all of that. Through the sovereign turning of rejections of the gospel into opportunities for the gospel, Paul never gave up. He trusted Jesus to do those kinds of things. And Jesus' presence, he remembered that he promised he would be with him. And he banked on that. That no matter what Jesus called him to do, he would never be alone in it. And so Paul was able to keep going. Paul was able to keep speaking and never give up. Because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And that's true today. I wonder if the fear of rejection or failure has closed your mouth in relationship to sharing the gospel with others. Has it made you timid in opening a conversation about the gospel or maybe telling your own story of faith in Jesus with other people? I want to encourage you to look to Jesus and never give up. Who is this Jesus? He is the one who came from heaven. He's the eternal son of God who came and he lived his life perfectly before God without any sin of his own. But he took our sins onto himself, sins that merit death penalty. And he died in our place for our sins. And he was buried in a tomb and he rose three days later. And when he rose, he took the sting of death and he defeated the evil one. He crushed his head. And he made a way for sin to no longer have power over our lives. 
He lives to set us free, to cleanse our hearts, to forgive us by the shedding of his blood. That's Jesus, and Jesus ascended to the Father, to the right hand of the Father. We saw that in Acts chapter one. He's ruling and reigning. He's the king, and he's carrying out his mission. He's continuing to do this, to unleash the gospel, and he means to do it through his spirit-empowered followers into the ends of the earth, you and me, into Awatuki, into all of our neighborhoods, whether it's in some little thing like a neighborhood Easter egg hunt where we invite people to come along or it's on a Sunday morning in the Easter service or any given Sunday, he wants us to never give up but to keep looking to him, knowing that apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us many promises in the scripture and you've shown us many things from the book of Acts and we are grateful this morning that you have shown us in Jesus the one who carries the gospel forward, the one who supplies every need that we have and supports the mission of the gospel even in our community, even in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. Lord Jesus, we look to you to make that happen, to make that true. We ask you to make us a church that will send people and support people in mission and church planting. We want to see that happen. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you open opportunities for the gospel, even in the face of rejection. Forgive us when we put people in the categories of likely or unlikely to receive the gospel. Remind us of where we were before we knew Jesus. And remind us of your power and the gracious work of your spirit to open people's ears and hearts to the gospel. Thank you for the promise of your presence. We know that we can't do anything apart from you. So make us fearless and loving and compassionate as we move out into the world with the good news that you save, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. Hey, let's stand together. We're going to respond to this in faith.